Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2 and the first four verses uh, we'll be looking at, Lord willing, uh, tonight. Now, I'm going to read verse 1 and then go back to the introduction, the brief introduction that I wrote down. Verse 1, therefore, I just want to stop right there. Uh, You've heard it said before, I'm sure, that old phrase, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to back up to see what it's there for. Um, So, because it's predicated on what has preceded uh, what's going to follow here. Which brings us to the introduction. Uh, The first four verses of this chapter, chapter 2 of Hebrews, brings the first warning passage in this book. Now remember, we mentioned this when we did the overview, the introduction to the book. The focus of the book is to the Hebrews, Jewish people. Jewish people who are truly saved, in other words, they are possessing believers, they They have the Lord. They have the Spirit of God. They're truly born-again believers. But there are also those warnings, those passages in the book of Hebrews that are addressed to Jewish people who are professing believers. They're not truly saved. They don't have the Spirit of God. They've made a profession. They have what we might call head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. So this book is addressed to Jewish people, those two groups. What we're going to look at tonight, the first four verses, the first warning passage. Actually, the first warning passage is a little bit, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Light, uh, not challenging at all as we get on into this book and get into the other warning passages, I'll mention the, the second to last <coughs> warning passage, at least a phrase from it, later on. It becomes uh, a lot stronger language that's used in the warning that's given. Uh, what is given here in the first one is really pretty uh, light, uh, not, not, not hard at all for the listeners, but we will be looking at the first warning passage. And what it's doing, it's warning those who are professing belief in Jesus as Messiah, Savior, 
don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to Mosaism. And at this time in the history of Israel, there was truly an admixture of Mosaism and Judaism. Mosaism being the teachings of Moses. You had the temple standing, you had the sacrifices, and so on. Uh, today in the Jewish world, you have pure rabbinicism. Uh, you don't have Mosaism anymore. At best, you have a, a shell of the Mosaic law and what Moses taught, but you have the teaching of the rabbis. At this time, there's that admixture. You've got the oral tradition. That's the teachings of the rabbis, which Jesus oftentimes interacted with when he addressed the Pharisees. Who, who were the followers of the oral law? The Sadducees or the Pharisees? Pharisees. The Sadducees rejected the oral law. They were what we would call Protestants, if you will. Um, but liberal Protestants, to say the least. Uh, uh, sola Scriptura is what they would say. Uh, but the only problem, that, well, the only problem, one of the main problems they had is they didn't believe in a lot of what was written. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection, the Sadducees. They, they didn't believe in a lot of stuff. Where the Pharisees, who elevated the oral tradition to the same level as written, meaning the Bible, the Word of God, um, and they at least believed in, in resurrection and angels and miracles and, and, and that type of thing. And when you read through the Gospels, when you understand that background, and you see how Jesus related to these different groups, you'll pick up why he would say something to one of these groups, like the Sadducees, and something completely different to another group, like the Pharisees, and, and it would be because he knows their, their, their belief system. And so we address them um, based on what their understanding was, which is very instructive for us. You know, we, we don't have to be experts in what other religions and other people believe. It cer certainly is helpful to know a little bit about them and what they believe. When you witness to a Jehovah Witness, for example, and I'm digressing a whole lot here, but anyway, um, when you witness to a Jehovah Witness, if you understand that they consider Jesus God, but a God, not Jehovah God, and, and that will influence or should influence how you share your faith with them. And one of the things I regularly do with the JW, Jehovah Witnesses, show them that Jesus is Jehovah. That's easily done from the earlier scriptures, the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Mormons, they'll, they'll tell you they need to be born again. They'll tell you they believe the Bible is the Word of God. They'll tell you that they believe Jesus is God. But hey, they can become just like Jesus became a God. Uh, and they believe in the multiplicity of gods, and um, so it helps you as you witness to them. So, uh, Jesus recognized this with the different groups that he um, dealt with. Now, I have no idea. I don't remember why I digressed to that point, but I did. Um, but be that as it may, um, it's good admonition. So, it's professing and possessing Jewish people that are addressed here. Now, certainly this is applicable to the day that we live. I guarantee you, in any Bible-believing church of any size, and, and that's a nebulous term, uh, 75, 100 people or more, perhaps, 
um, there are going to be those in the congregation who are professing believers. They're not truly saved. Uh, so it's very applicable uh, what we're looking at to people today, although in context it's speaking to the Jewish people who are in danger of falling back. Now I remember I get to uh, mosaism slash rabbinism uh, because the rabbis and the oral traditions of that day. So he's speaking to them. So in verse 1, he, he starts, Therefore, predicated on the first chapter, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So therefore, based on what was expounded on in chapter 1, and the heart of what is expounded on in chapter 1, two things. Um, number one, the introduction, the first three verses of this book. And, and I mentioned before, I'll mention it again, Lord willing, as we get ultimately to the ninth verse. When you read the book of Hebrews, what, when, do you, when, do, when are you confronted with who the Son is? Remember the chapter, remember the verse? Look at your Bibles. That's fair. I'm not going to, you know, we're not grading you on this. This is an open Bible test. 2 9, chapter 2, verse 1. Where is it? But we see Jesus. Up to that point, the only thing he is talking about the Son, God in these last days has spoken on to us by or through his Son. Um, and mentioned before, great primer for Jewish evangelism. Because what the writer of Hebrews does is he gives prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the first chapter uh, about the Messiah. And the key of all those prophecies is it's presenting the Messiah, the Son, as deity. But what he does in the first three verses, he, he, he presents to these Jewish readers who would have understood the background, the Messiah. The Messiah, or the term Messiah, comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. And in the Old Testament economy, in, in ancient Israel economy, there were three offices. And when you were placed in any one of those offices, prophet, priest, or king, you were anointed into that office. You had oil smeared over your head, and it was just a ritual that put you or placed you into that office. Biblically, in ancient Israel, one could only serve officially in one office. You couldn't be both king and prophet. You couldn't be priest and prophet. Now, David was in the office of king, and be, just because he prophesied and wrote uh, things ab about the Lord and prophecy doesn't make him a prophet. He was, he was in the office of king. But the one who is coming, the anointed one, all three of these offices will come together in this one individual. And we looked at that in, in Zechariah chapter 6 when we looked at that in the, in the first look at this. Uh, and that's how it starts out. In verse 2, he is God's prophet. He is God's king. He is the heir of all things. In other words, he's the ruler. 
He's inherited all things, and he is God's priest. When he had offered himself and purged the sins of the world, he sat down. He's God's priest. So it's a very, very Jewish way of starting the book. But if you didn't understand the, office of, or the offices of ancient Israel, and, and unquestionably, the readers would have. I mean, there were priests. There was no kings at this point. Uh, the, the, the time of prophets, certainly the Old Testament prophets had, had passed off the scene. There were New Testament prophets who had come on the scene. But undoubtedly, unquestionably, the readers would have understood these offices and the Mashiach, the Messiah, that within this one individual, all three offices would come together where he would be the prophet, the priest, the king, the Messiah. And so it starts out and presents the son who inhabits all three of these office, offices, who is the Messiah. Then from verse 4 on to the end of the chapter, I didn't count them, I perhaps should have, six or seven or eight prophecies from the uh, Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, if you want to use that term, that show that the Messiah, or the Son, let me just take it in that vernacular, that's the term that is used, is better than the angels. Why is he better than the angels? He's God. Psalm 45, Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 110, are just, you know, these are some of those that are quoted over and over and over again. So therefore, because I just introduced you to the Son, who is the Messiah of Israel, who is better than the angels because he is Jehovah God himself, and one of those passages, if not more than one, uh, actually used Jehovah to describe the Son. He is better than the angels because is very God himself, therefore we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. And again, the things we have heard is what precedes this, chapter 1. Now, the word ought, yeah, I didn't, maybe I should get more uh, other translations and see the word that is used. Who has, uh, the King James says, therefore we ought to give. Must is much better. Must is much better. You know, ought gives you the, the, the inference of what? Well, if you're, you know, if you're so disposed, you know, consider what's happening. That type of thing. But that's not this word here. Must is a much better word. Um, he's being very emphatic, the writer. Therefore, in other words, because the Son is God, so much better than the angels, who Jewish people revered, uh, you know, Gabriel, you know, he came to Daniel, gave him that amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and uh, angels delivered the law to Moses, who gave it to us, and so they revered angels, not in the sense of um, a lot of people today in our world today, not worshipful, but they, they esteemed angels because of uh, messengers of God, as it were. So you must, not you ought, you must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. You must focus on what you've heard. 
Now, they're in danger of going back. These are the professors. And, and this is also an encouragement to these believers who are young in their faith as well. And, and it's kind of just establishing in them and their faith, hey, this one that we're talking about, the son, is very Jehovah God himself. But it's the professors that he's concerned about here, those who are not truly saved and are, are, are very much in danger of going back to Judaism and, and, and missing the boat, as it were. You ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. More attention in a much greater detail or degree than anything else you might hear. Pay attention to what has been taught. First chapter. Lest, the end of verse 1, at any time we should let them slip. Nepote, <clears throat> uh, in, in, in no way, don't let, them, don't let that happen. Uh, and, and slip literally means to patch you by, to go by you, to slide by you. So you need to pay attention to what was taught, lest they slip by you. And, and, and this word was used, uh, oh, I'm not the best at this type of stuff. But anyway, the thought is this. So have a drifting boat without oars, motor, rudder, any kind of navigational means whatsoever, just drifting down the river. The boat is at the mercy of the elements, and it can just slip right on by, and you have no control over it in that sense. That's the thought there. You're going to let this slip by, um, and it's just going to pass you by because you're, you're so concerned about your, your tradition, your religion. Uh, maybe family had an impact on their thinking, whatever the case might be. Don't let it slip by. Don't let it pass you by. You must pay attention to what was taught. And the thought is, embrace it. Embrace it with all of your heart. Then in verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, he is still contrasting the sun with angels. He has, again, in chapter 1, contrasted the sun with angels by showing that the sun is so much better. Why? Sun is God. No angel is God. He is so much better. So in verse 2, he says, If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, was sure, was established. And again, this goes back to what I've just mentioned uh, previously. Angels were the mediator, in a sense, who delivered the law from God to Moses. We're not going to look at these references, Psalm 68, 17, Galatians 3, 19, Acts 7, 53. But the point is, when the angels gave that law, it was from God, and it was sure. It was solid. It was steadfast. It couldn't and wouldn't be moved. 
whenever angels, godly angels, uh, not the fallen angels, would come to man and, and deliver them a word from God, uh, it was fast. Go back to Gabriel. Took two weeks. He was fighting, um, uh, you know, the devil, Satan. But when he finally delivered the answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 and gave him that uh, wonderful, amazing, fantastic 70th, 70-week uh, prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It was, we, it was steadfast. Uh, it is sure. Uh, you know, seven, 490 years are, are determined upon my people, Daniel said, uh, the Jewish people, and the holy city, Jerusalem. And six things will be accomplished, and they're uh, enumerated for us in verse 24, and then it gives the layout of the timetable, uh, and that takes us all the way to the end of history, at least of up to the end of the tribulation period. It's going to come to pass. You know, it gives us the timetable for the coming of Jesus, and Jesus came exactly when the chronology of Daniel 9, 24, 27 said he would, actually to the very day, the first coming. But those six things that will be accomplished, uh, the, the forgiveness of sins and, and all of these other things has to do with the Jewish people, end of the tribulation period. And that last seven-year period is what we refer to as the tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel. It's going to happen. I mean, you know, people, well, you know, it's been 2,000 years, and, you know, they've been talking for 2,000 years that this is going to happen, and then Jesus is going to return, and, you know, where's the promise of his coming, and, uh, you know, maybe it's just uh, allegory, and maybe it's not literal, because, you know, that's kind of, you read the book of Revelation, and that's kind of way out there and all the stuff, and so maybe it's not really to be understood literally. Uh, that's what a lot of people say. It will be fulfilled literally, just as it's laid out. It is steadfast. Uh, it is the word of God, that type of thing. So they are to give heed uh, to it. And if the word that was spoken by angels was steadfast, sure, 100% certain, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now here it's in the context, certainly, of the angels delivering the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law <coughs> had blessing and cursing associated with it. I'm not sure the rabbis are correct on this, but uh, the rabbis tell us how many negative commandments are there in the Mosaic Law. Except for Cheryl, she can't answer this. And Dan, maybe. Dan, you keep quiet. Lauren can answer it if she knows it. Anybody know how many of the, the command? how many commandments, what's the, how many commandments do the rabbis say are contained in the Mosaic Law? Let's start there. Six, 613, someone said. That's correct. How many do they say of those commandments are negative? How many days do we have in the year? That's how many negative commandments they say they are. One for every day of the year. I don't know. You know. Thou shalt not, 365. 
And uh, then they say there are thus how many positive commandments contained in the Mosaic Law? 613 minus 365 equals, Ken, put you on the spot, 248. Pardon? <laughs> 248. Now, I've heard, I have never seen this. They say, well, that's the number of bones we have in the body. I, I think it's only if you've got broken bones. But anyway, um, that's what they say is the number of positive commandments. So in the law, you have positive commandments, thou shalt do, and you have negative commandments, thou shalt not do. Well, every word that the angels delivered, the Mosaic Law, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. A, a, a proper discipline based on what is due you because you broke the law of God. It is steadfast, it is sure, it is unquestionable, and uh, it would receive discipline. Now, I think that's from a godly perspective and not from a human perspective. Because from a human perspective, there was this lack of following through and carrying out the judgments and the transgressions. So from, but from a godly uh, perspective, there would be discipline, and God did that with Israel regularly uh, when their time came. So, you know, God is not mocked. It, you know, when with lawbreakers. They will be punished. They will get what they deserve. For example, um, you know, in a larger scale of things, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You want to, I've talked to, to people before, and some, especially older people who come out of um, a, a strong works, or, or involved and not come out of, but are involved in a strong works-based religion. Sometimes it's so difficult to get them lost. I, I remember years ago, and I, I think I've shared this before, I talked to a Catholic lady, she must have been, I don't remember her age, in her 60s or 70s at the time. I spent over an hour trying to get her lost. I used every scripture I could think of, and more than, than some I probably shouldn't have used. But anyway, um, trying to help her see her sin before a holy God. And, and at the end, I was beside myself. Wow. Yeah, I, I believe that. Sure, all have sinned, but, well, have you sinned? No, I haven't sinned, but everybody else has sinned, you know. And uh, I, I ended the conversation with her. I said, let God be true and every man a liar. And I said, I don't remember her name now. I said, uh, Mary, whatever her name was, you say you've never sinned. God says you've sinned. Either you're a liar or God is a liar. You choose. That was how it ended. But um, I, one of the, not that it works every time. You want to you, you ask somebody if they're a sinner. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to die? Well, anybody, everybody. Now, we all die. Come on. We, even in the rapture, we die. We've talked about this before. The rapture is death. What is death? Biblically speaking. Separation. When the spirit and soul separate from the body. That's all death is. 
It's not cessation of life. That's not a biblical definition of death. It's separation. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, if you uh, eat of that fruit of the tree, thou shalt, what? Surely die. Did they die physically right then and there after they had eaten? No. So how did they die immediately? Sin, they, separated, they were separated from God. Later on, they would die physically, and their body and soul separated from their, their spirit and soul separated from their body. Um, at the rapture, what happens at the rapture? We, we put off the old body, and we put on the new body. We are changed. How quickly does that happen? That's, that's faster than a blink, a twinkle. That's death. It is so quick. You know, we think of death, you know, mentioned Tommy Ice in the hospital earlier, the prayer request, and um, heart attack, and concerned about pneumonia, and, um, uh, you know, blood clots, and, and we think, wow, he's on, on the brink, perhaps, of death. Hopefully not, but perhaps on the... And we think of, of the pain and the agony and the, the enduring of, of that process, and... Death is that point when we separate. You know, we never, we don't like the process of death. You know, I, I want to go one of two ways. My first option is the rapture. My second option is I'm walking down a big city with a very high building, and I'm not look, noticing, and, and a 2,000-pound safe falls off from the roof or wherever, and I never see it, and it just lands right on me. <laughs> and I'm out of here so quickly, I never knew it was coming. I'd rather the first, you know, it's the process of death that, that concern us. It's, in, my, in my sleep will work, too. That's true, too. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but my, my, my illustration is much better than dying in my sleep. But anyway, um, so death is separation. And at the rapture, because it doesn't say, any, it, it, doesn't say um, it is appointed unto man once to die. So we've got to die. The rapture is a process of death, but it is so instantaneous. We put off the old body and we put on the new body. So instantaneous, we separate, as it were, our body from our spirit and soul, but we, it happens so quick, it doesn't, it doesn't register as death to us. But it is death, because death is just separation. That's all. Um, so ask somebody, are you going to die? If you die, what is a wage? A wage is something you earn, you deserve to get for something you have done. So the wages of your sin, if you're going to die, that means you've earned dying or death because of what? Sin. Now, that may not convince somebody who thinks they're a good person, but... If you're going to die, you're a sinner, plain and simple. How many people are going to die? Everybody. So if Jesus wouldn't have been crucified, he never would have died. He was perfect. He had no sin. If Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned, they never would have died because they had no sin. When they sinned, they died. That was the warning given to them. Or how about Galatians 6, 7? Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
when, when, when somebody sins, if you disobey, if you commit a transgression, you will be judged for it. Maybe not in the world's courts. You know, I, 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 can, I can empathize with Ken and his hope and prayer that since this corruption is coming out, that all these corruptors, if I can call them that, uh, will be held accountable and will go to jail. I, I agree with you. I hope that's true. I don't have nearly the faith you do, Ken. Um, you know, I would like to think it's going to happen. Uh, I'm really, you know, I, you know, I don't want to bring politics. How many, think, of a, think of a politician in your mind who skirted the law for how many years and is running free. There's a lot of them. You know, there's, there, there's, you know, there's probably, you know, some are more culpable than others. You know, you know, they, you know, they're, you know, B and H C. But anyway, um, you know, so I'm not so sure it's going to happen. But they will answer to God one day. Fear not. Fear not. God will judge. Ultimately, all who will reject his son. That's the, con the context here. In the second to last warning passage, it gets a lot more pointed at that point. The awful ramifications of rejecting the son is stated this way. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's where this warning now is starting. It's, it's very light here. It's very, very mellow. Don't let it slip by. Give more earnest heed. You must listen to it. Don't let it slip by. You know, if the word that angels gave and, and that the people who received that and, and rebelliousness, transgression, uh, sinfulness, uh, disobedience, if that was judged, uh, you're going to be judged too. But this is pretty much, pretty light. But it's a, you know, just go home tonight or sometime. And just think on that thought. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Speaking of an unbeliever. Speaking of someone who has rejected the Savior. And, and, and if you just think on I mean, it, it should put, bring chills up your back. You know, God is completely holy and just and righteous. And so many people in the world so glibly, you know, talk about him. And spiritual leaders, you know, this book, you know, why don't you hand me that book if you would. Making Nonsense of the Bible. No, no, it's actually called Making Sense of the Bible. Uh, it should be titled Making Nonsense of the Bible. I, I tremble to be in Adam Hamilton's shoes. Because one day, he's going to fall into the hands of, of, a, of the living God. And he is going to have to answer. He doesn't believe in the Son. He doesn't believe the Bible's the Word of God. He's what you might call neo-Orthodox. Well, whatever in the Bible speaks to you, that's God's Word to you. It may not be God's Word. You know, it's just liberalism. And, 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 you know, and uh, when you gave me this book, the first thing I always, I always go to see in the, who, um, who do they get to um, uh, promote the book, you know, to, to give an endorsement of the book. Well, 
some of these names I didn't recognize. But then I came to Jim Wallace, and I, know, I don't know him personally. What a Christ-denying, liberal, Bible-denying, blasphemous individual. He gives a recommendation. And then under him is, and I mentioned this last week, Brian D. McLaren. Boy, that's like going from the frying pan into the fire. As bad as Wallace is, McLaren is that much worse. I didn't even have to look at it, and I looked at some of the things in here. What a piece of garbage. Um, making, sense, making nonsense of the Bible is what it is. Um, you know, if you need to start a kindling for a fire at home, I, you know, um, you know, I, I would hate to, I would, I would not want to, we know God is a loving Father. We've bowed our knees to the Son, to Jesus, and accepted Him. And to us, there's comfort and hope and promise and, and so much. But to those who deny the Son, especially if they're antagonistic, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unbelievers he's talking about. God will judge all who reject his son. That's the context. Don't let it slip by. Don't miss it for whatever reason you get because you will answer to God if you reject the son because he is God. So turn, the, turn it over. Now, I, I put in a box here for believers. The focus here, the context is the unbelievers. Uh, but we may need to be reminded of the principle that God will execute justice, judgment against evildoers. If we don't leave vengeance to the Lord, Romans 12, 19. God says, vengeance is mine. At the very least, we can develop a bitter spirit. You know, I added this this morning. I remember, I, I think I saw it early this morning. I think it was from yesterday. You may have seen it on the news. You're probably familiar with the a gymnastics doctor who is being tried for heinous sex crimes against young gymnastic girls over, I don't know how many years, 170 girls. Um, what, what a um, horrific thing. Well, the father, you may, maybe you saw the father of three of the kids, because he, he, they were taking victim statements I guess yesterday and today, and his was yesterday, as I remember. So, Judge, I just want five minutes alone with him. <laughs> and the judge said, well, I can't do that. And, I, and I, I, then I, I want just three minutes alone with him. <laughs> and, and I can, under, you know, Cheryl and I have a, um, a baby girl. She's not a baby anymore. Uh, she's going to be 30 in a month or so, but a couple of months. But anyway. Um, and she was in gymnast, in gymnastics. She was not bad, but she was not Olympic level. Um, she was a level five or six, and you get up to nine and ten, you become Olympic level. But anyway, be that as it may. Um, I can understand the rage of the father. Now, I have no idea what his um, faith system is, if he has any, is he a believer or not? I have no idea in that. But he said, finally, he said, Judge, just give me one minute. That's all I want, one minute alone with this guy. And Judge said, I cannot do that. He 
he said, well, I'm going to take what I can get right now. And he just you know, ran, trying to get a hold of and, uh, this Nasser guy. And the, uh, the bailiffs in the court intercepted him and, and that type of thing. And uh, the judge, uh, when it was all over, basically said, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from, but we cannot let, you know, our justice system become, um, you know, tyranny, that type of thing. And, she, and to her credit, she said, but there's no way I am going to press any charges against you for what you have done. I understand where you're coming from. But we have laws and we have justices, uh, justice, and, and he will be meted out judgment, justice. Um, I've never been put in a position like that. You know, to my knowledge, nothing like that has ever happened to our daughter. Um, I don't know if it's ever happened to your children or something of that nature. So I don't know how I would react. But look at, look at Psalm 37. I didn't put the whole the psalm down here. Turn to Psalm 37. I imagine my human nature, not a lot different from your human nature, fallen and lost and sinful and, and so on, very easily could say, okay, I want to do what that father did. I want one minute with this guy. Um, I want to uh, be able to uh, take him apart for one minute and uh, that type of, that, that's the old nature. Look what Psalm 37 says, 1 through 10. We could read the whole chapter. Psalm of David. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Well, we can stop there. You know, it's, it, and I've got to be careful here. It's, when you, it's, and I, you know, Alan and April don't, get involved in this so they don't have as much problem they don't have a, they don't get involved with political issues of the day and that and that's commendable because I, I would listen to the news and hear what's happening in can and so on and you know it makes your blood boil you know what they've done their their the evil doing and that type of thing and I like this done and yada 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 and that type of thing and and yes justice should be done but you know we are not to fret that's what it says. We are not to fret, Psalm 37, 1, because of evildoers. There's always going to be sinful people. There's always going to be people who are sinful in the political realm. And again, why? I, we, I mentioned earlier, the kingdoms of this world today, and, and has ever since governments were formed, really, they belong to Satan. If they belong to Satan you're going to have primarily his people in it. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, fret not thyself because of evil doers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Don't fret over them. Don't be envious of, of, of the ill-gotten gain that they get. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the grain herb. Their, their dew is coming. Now, God's time is not our time. Um, you know, if I had my way, eh, call me a boop. Goodbye, James. Goodbye, this guy. Goodbye, that guy. Um, and so on. Um, yes? Is there anything 
Well, envious or agitated. If you're envious, you're agitated. Why do they have this and I don't have this? You know, it's the same type of thing. Same type of thing. Um, but the bottom, they're going to be cut down. God's going to deal with them. Maybe not on this earth, but ultimately they will meet, they will be taken care of. So what are we to do? Verse 3. Trust in the Lord. Do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Now, just really quickly in verses 3 through 5, uh, if you trust in the Lord, verse 3, and if you do good, and if you delight yourself in the Lord, verse 4, uh, it says, he will give thee the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean, hey, I've been wanting this 2018 Cadillac with all the bells and whistles. It cost $90,000. I don't know what it cost, you know. And that's my desire. And if I did, why hasn't God given me this new Cadillac? It's not what this is saying. <laughs> that becomes sinful, actually, and you're not delighting the Lord. No, if, if you're doing these things, verse 3 and 4, trusting the Lord, uh, living godly, doing good, delighting thyself in the Lord, what it says, God will put his desires in your heart to lead you. And I don't think he's going to put the desire of a 2018 fully loaded Cadillac or whatever is your dream car. Um, Maserati, but, you know, uh, DeLorean. But anyway, no, he's going to put his desires in your heart um, that you are to, to, to follow. Um, and by the way, boy, I, maybe I shouldn't have gone here. But anyway, where do we, where do we primarily find the will of God? Scripture. Only the Word of God. But what happens if you're working in a uh, okay position, an attorney, oh, maybe we're not an attorney. Okay, let's use, maybe you're an eye doctor, or, you know, you're in tech or something. You know, there are godly attorneys around. I shouldn't give, you know, nobody's attorney in here, I hope. But anyway. You know, should we all tell attorney jokes for a while? But anyway, uh, if you're working in, in, in an honorable, godly position, whatever it might be, maybe you're working for, um, what's one of the, for um, AT&T, is that, yeah. And then Oracle comes along and offers you a job at uh, $1,000 a week raise and a bigger office or whatever and better pension. Well, well, where does God want you to be? Does he want you to stay at AT&T? Or does he want you to take the job at Oracle? And the bottom line shouldn't be the monies that are offered or the, you know, the, the position. That, you know, and, and, and I've looked all the way through the Bible. I can't find the AT&T mentioned. I, I do find Oracle mentioned. What advantage then had the Jew? Chiefly much every way that unto them were given the oracle. The oracles of God. No, I'm, you know, that's not the company. So, so I can't find anything in the Bible that tells me I should stop working at AT&T and move over to Oracle. Both would be acceptable. So how do you determine where God wants you to be? Well, I, I think the answer is right here. If you're trusting in the Lord and you're doing good and you're delighting yourself in the Lord, 
I think ultimately God will put in your heart his desire for he, where he wants you to be. And if he wants you to stay at A&T, you're not going to have a desire to move over to Oracle, even though the pay is better, for whatever reason. But if he wants you to move over to Oracle, he's going to put that desire in your heart. So there are those um, not black and white issues in our life. So how do we figure the will of God in those areas? Well, I, this is where it comes. Now, if you're working as a teller in a bank, an honorable profession, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I got a better position for you. Let's rob the bank. You'll make so much more money. Now, what you, you know, obviously, you know, one is honorable and one is not of God, dishonorable. So it's got to be, you know, you, know, you follow? Uh, you know, God's not going to put in your heart the desire to rob the bank because your pay is going to be a lot better. Um, because you, you also may end up with free room and board, but that's a whole nother story. Um, so, so delight, trust, do good, and God will put in your heart his desire where you should be and serve, as it were. Okay? But then look down. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not thy... How many times do you use fret in this fast, in these few verses? Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth for yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. There's going to be wicked with us to the end of time. Don't be consumed by the wicked around us. Be they in political positions, or religious positions, or whatever position they might be. How do we overcome that? Well, you have it here for one. Trust the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Do good. He will bring it to pass. But here's another passage that will tell you how to do it. Only when one walks in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16 through 19. We'll read that shortly. He doesn't let his flesh sin rule. The contrast in Galatians 5, 5 is the sinful works of the flesh and the righteous works of the Holy Spirit. The law is not the Mosaic law here, although most commentators believe this. It's the law of sin. I, I have to curious, I, I don't know how many commentaries I looked at to see what they said about the law. Well, let me read verses 16 through 19 first. This I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that ye would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. If you walk or are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
almost every commentary I read said the law here is the Mosaic law. I don't see it. I mean, the, what is the context? It's, the, it's the, being led by the Spirit versus being led by the flesh, our sin nature. Look at Romans 7. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And this is speaking to believers. This is the sanctification process. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. And so here's this um, uh, just uh, betwixt type of thing. You know, I want to do good, but I don't do good and I do bad. And I don't want to, uh, you know, and when I, you know, I don't want to do bad, and, and, and it just, everything comes out backwards. I don't know how to, what I'm going to do. Um, then it goes on. Verse 20. Now if I do that, I would not. It is more, that, uh, is more I that do it, but sin, is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in my flesh. What's the context of Galatians 5? The flesh controlling you, sin, or this being led by the Spirit of God. If you let the flesh control you, you're going to be fornication and adultery and anger and bitterness and, and all of the sins that, that you can think of that come along with the flesh. But if the Spirit of God leads you, and it goes on in Galatians, I didn't put it down here, the Spirit of God is love and joy and peace, you know, the fruit of the Spirit we talk about. Uh, and I would, by the way, submit to you, it, does, it doesn't say the, the fruits of the Spirit, it says the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is manifested in all those other things. Joy and patience and uh, long-suffering and all those other things. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. Kind of like Galatians, not Galatians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The major thing is love. And love doesn't what? Vault itself, lift itself up, speak badly of other people. You know, when I, I don't really speak badly of Bob, I'm sorry. You know, uh, Bob's not here. You know, I kid with Bob. I like Bob. But don't tell Bob I told you I like Bob. You know, we don't want him to be lifted up with pride. Bob had a long lost cousin that showed up tonight, so he said he's not coming for the Bible study. You know, he's the guy with the long beard in the back there. You know who I'm talking about. Um, so, anyway, don't tell Bob I said all that about him. I hope he's not watching. Um, he's a good guy. He's really a good guy. So, I just give him a hard time to keep him humble. You know, him and Buzz, I got to give a hard time, you know. So, so Buzz, since Bob's not here tonight, you're getting a double dose, okay? Okay, don't mention it. Um, so anyway, the, the law of sin, is, the law here is the law of sin in the flesh. 
So, so how do you control yourself with evildoers when they proliferate? How do you control yourself when you learn that your three daughters have been systematically molested, sexually abused over, I don't know how many years, five, seven, ten years. There's only one way. And I don't know if the father who, who did that yesterday was a believer or not. There's only one way. You have to be led by the Spirit. Nobody's saying it's easy. But if you're not led by the Spirit and you let the law of sin control you, you're going to do the same type of thing that that father did yesterday. And I can, I can fully, you know, I'm, I'm, I think the judge handled it well. Um, and, and her comments were right on. Hey, he will dealt, be dealt with by the law. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We cannot let the flesh get the best of it. So when we're walking with the Lord, we can be in the place where we will not fret and worry and get agitated because of what politicians do or religious leaders do or the one who you thought was your best friend who ran off with your spouse. Yeah. It's tough, but if you actually walk with the Spirit, you can leave in God's hand to handle it. Handle it. It's, and I'm not, I don't want to paint a Pollyanna type of picture. It's not easy. But here's the answer. Galatians chapter 5. Psalm 37. That's the answer. So, so verse number 3. Because we've got about 17 minutes to get through 3 and 4. And there's a lot to cover here. Um, Verse 3, how shall we escape? Here's, here's really the beginning. The warning has already started. You, you must consider what has been said. Don't let it slip by. Don't miss the intent. And then he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So obviously, what do they miss? Are they saved? No, the issue here is not living a Christian life. The, Christ, the, here, the issue here is more basic. Are you saved or are you not saved? Are you born again or are you not born again? Do you really possess Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Or are you just professing him? How can you escape? If we, and Paul is, not Paul, the writer is identifying with the, with the people he's speaking to. How shall we escape if we neglect? Let it slip by. Like the, like the boat without a rudder, without an oar, without a motor. That the boat is just at the mercy of the elements and just sliding down the river and no way to change its course. If you neglect it, if you let it pass you by, how can you escape the judgment that's coming if you neglect so great salvation, which at the first salvation began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, uh, first, the first thought. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You know, maybe you should sit and um, uh, meditate on uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that's addressed to unbelievers. Think of this as a believer. Meditate on this. So great a salvation. Have you ever considered how great our salvation is? 
Now, the warning here is to those who let it slip by and don't embrace it. How great is our salvation? I put down six things here, and um, there are others that I'm sure could be added to this. One of the reasons salvation is great, so great, not just great, so great. Simple. You can be five, or you can be 105 and understand the simplicity of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no criteria that you have to meet to earn heaven, salvation. You don't have to be good 90% of the time to get to heaven. Salvation is very simple. Five-year-old can understand, a 105-year-old can understand it. By grace you're saved through faith. That levels the playing field. If salvation was only available to those who could pay into the church $5 million, how many people would end up in heaven? Not a lot. It's open to any and all. It is very, very simple. So great is salvation. Not only is it simple, it's by great, by faith, through faith. It's free. It doesn't cost $5 million. The wages of sin, yes, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. It's free. A gift is free. You don't pay for a gift. You don't earn a gift. There's no price that, or monies that you have to come up with for a gift. It's free. That's great. And again, if there was some kind of monetary value put on salvation that we had to come up with, almost everybody in the world couldn't meet that. It's free. It's universal. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's available to everybody and anybody. Men, women, adults, children, black, white, matters not, Jew, Gentile. It is universal. Salvation is there for all. It costs no one a dime, and it is very simple. It's through faith. It's universal. Salvation is sufficient. And by him, all that believe, faith, are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You cannot be justified by trying to keep the Mosaic law. You, you talk to any Jewish person. How ma, if they know how many parts make up the Mosaic law. Oh, 613. Great. How, can you name them all for me? Most of them can't name the first 10. 10 commandments. How can you keep all parts, all 613 commandments if you don't know them? Ignorance is not a defense in a court of law. And ignorance is no defense before God. We have broken God's law, the Mosaic law. No man is justified by the law. But you know what? Once we're saved by faith, we are justified from how many things? All things. Isn't that so great salvation? It is sufficient for all our sins. There's not a thing that you have ever done that God cannot forgive through what his son has done for you. 
you th think of the worst sin. You don't have to mention it. I, I remember years ago, a, a young Jewish gal had come to the Lord, um, and she shared her testimony, or she shared it with me personally afterwards. I don't remember. It was at a Bible study I taught, and, and, she, and, and I may have been it may have been personal afterwards, um, and, and she, had, she, had had, she had gotten a, uh, an abortion. She was like 20, 21, 22. And when she was 18, 17, I don't remember the exact age, she had gotten an abortion. And she was just overwhelmed with guilt. She had been talked into it. It's just a fetus. It's, it's, it's not a living thing. It's not a baby. You're too young, you can't, you know, whatever the, whatever the reasoning was, and, and she went with it, whether it was pressure from her boyfriend, whether it was pressure from her parents, I, I have no idea, I don't remember, but she went ahead and had that abortion. And she was racked with guilt that she had killed a baby. She said, when I found forgiveness through Jesus the Messiah, she said it was like a hundred pound, that's literally the word she used, it's like a hundred pound weight had been taken off my shoulders. I'm sorry I did it, but God's forgiven me. And I've been set free. Wow, what a testimony. What a testimony that she shared. His salvation, amen, praise the Lord, is so great because it is sufficient for every sin we have committed. Every sin. There's not one. Why is it so great? It's priceless. Matthew 16, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What what are you going to give for yourself? If you could have all the world, what good is it? I remember years ago, everything is years ago. Anyway, I spent six months witnessing to Manny Kimmel. Now, Manny Kimmel doesn't mean anything to you. Cheryl knew Manny Kimmel or knew of him. Did you meet him, Manny? Manny was married. Manny, when I met him, was... Um, Late 60s, early 70s. I was a young whippersnapper. I was Dan's age, you know. I was wet in the ears. I knew about as much as Dan knew, you know. <laughs> he's, he's hiding behind in the cubicle. <laughs> Amen. And Manny was late 60s, early 70s. Manny was married to this gorgeous 37-year-old gal from Estonia or somewhere in Europe uh, named uh, Ivy, I-V-I. You never could miss her name because he had made a nice diamond pendant for her, Ivy. It's probably worth $50,000. Did you, you never met Ivy, but he wore her all the time. Manny was extremely wealthy. He's a Jewish man. He hung around with Bunker Hunt, he told me, and that type of crowd. Well, I went over weekly for about six months to witness to um, Manny. And um, it was fascinating. Oh, 
oh, let me take you up. To, he took me around his villa in Miami Beach, and uh, this is a Van Gogh. He didn't have any gold toilets, but he said, this is a Mozart. Uh, not a Mozart. This is a Rembrandt. And this is a Picasso. He says, but the problem is I don't have enough walls for all my paintings. Let me show you what I have up in my attic. Climate control. And he must have had 40 pictures. This is a Picasso. This is another Rembrandt. This is a Monet. This is a whatever the case might be. And, and all, I, all I could think of was, what profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He, had, he was the, maybe the largest shareholder in Warner Brothers. Uh, he had traded, he had owned Kinney parking lots in New York and traded that in. Warner Brothers had brought, bought him out. He, he went to Israel. We, in, in the early 80s, we were there, and when, when they were filming the uh, movie Masada, we were on top of Masada and looking down, and they were filming that then. And he said, that's my company, Warner Brothers. And I said, to my knowledge, he never came to the Lord. He had, I mean, it was tough witnessing to him. Why? loved to gamble. He'd get calls from his bookies from around the country. Oh, put $10,000 down on, uh, you know, whether the sun's coming up in the next hours, or whatever the case might be. And uh, to my knowledge, he, he died lost. And uh, what will a profit demand? He had everything you could want financially. But he was bankrupt spiritually. Salvation is priceless. Don't trade anything, not that you can trade anything, but you, I hope you understand, it, it, salvation is so great, you shouldn't take all the wealth of the world in place of what you have. So great salvation. It's eternal. I give unto them eternal life, Jesus said. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Salvation is eternal. It never ends. It goes on. The first billion years is a drop in the bucket of eternity. It is eternal. If we escape, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It's no wonder in light of how great salvation is, how shall you escape? In, in how great salvation is. It can't even begin to be put into words. But then look at the next phrase. Uh, this is page three. And boy, maybe I should hold this till next week. Because um, this is, we've got a page and a half left. I'm going to stop right here. Because what we're going to look at next is going to be a, a little bit, um, it's going to raise a, a bunch of questions in the minds of some people. Um, and you can read it as you go home or next week, whatever the take, because we're going to look at gifts and sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, why they were given, the purpose of gifts, and that type of thing. Um, and so, the, you know, there's always questions around this. So we're going to stop right here, because it's, 27 after 8. And if I don't stop here, we're going to 9 or later. And so I'm going to stop. And we will pick it up 
in verse, as we go on. Um, Hebrews is a great book, but it's a book of warnings as well. Salvation is so, so great. Because God became man. The Son, Jehovah, took on flesh and died for our sins. And don't ever underestimate how great your salvation is. So great a salvation. It is. You know, I was saved when I was 27. Um, and, and I know, especially in, in my infant days as a child of God, um, for the first number of years, and, and uh, I was just overwhelmed, I guess is the word way to put it. And, and perhaps those who were saved later in life. Um, I know, I don't know the testimony of all, your, all, all, all the people here. My wife was saved when she was in the womb. No, she wasn't. She was like, she, she, but she was saved very young. That's what I'm getting at. She was like five. You know, when you're, I, I, at five, you know, I wanted, I was playing cars and soldiers and, you know, what did I know about spiritual things? You know, what did I know about sin? Uh, but she was set, what, roughly around five or so. Now, Ray and Charlotte, they got saved when they were old. They, they lived a whole life of sin. I know that for a fact, right? Amen. So, I don't know it. For, I've heard a little bit of their story. They're like me, you know. And, when, you know, when I got saved at the age of 27, pardon? Four years ago. So, yeah, and she's only 30... 35 now, so, uh, you know, but anyway, you know, the, the first few years of, of my new life in Christ, I was just blown away, I, you know, and, and some of you have heard my testimony and after I got saved and what God did in my life, but I, I was just overwhelmed is, is perhaps, you know, by s salvation and knowing God and, you know, this is the word of God. This is God's word. Wow. That, that just blew me away. And, uh, you know, it's been um, years since then, um, over 40 years since then. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think maybe it becomes too complacent, uh, too matter-of-fact, and it shouldn't be. So great a salvation. It is. So great. I, I, I can't say that. Let's pray. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.